Welcome to PCTY Talks, a new podcast from the human capital management software provider, Paylocity. I'm your host, Sherry Simpson, and as an HR program manager at Paylocity, I will be navigating our journey together as we explore bite-sized topics around HR thought leadership, compliance, diversity and inclusion, and product knowledge. If you have an idea for a future podcast topic, please drop me a note at pctytalks at paylocity.com. On today's episode, I will be speaking with Ashley Nelson from INSEAS on developing resiliency. This episode is part one of two, so make sure you listen to part two to hear the full discussion. This is especially important given the current stress people are experiencing. For that reason, we will also be releasing a bonus episode with Ashley where she walks through a moment to arrive practice for developing resiliency every day. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. I was hoping we could start off by having you share a little bit about your journey from being a senior exec at Fossil to starting your own company in CS. Sure, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Mindfulness has been a game changer in my life. About nine years ago, one of my children was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. And at the time, I was in a senior management role at Fossil leading a global business unit and had a very full and robust career, work life, and full and robust family life. As you can imagine, uh, there was a lot of stress, uncertainty, and fear connected to this time at home. And while I had always had a mindfulness practice of some sort, I really began to deepen not only my practice, but the learning behind what happens in our brains and our bodies and the anatomy of stress as we practice mindfulness. And one of the reasons that at that time I told myself I deepened my practice and deepened my learning was to support those that I love on the home front. Well, what I really found out during that time is that deepening my mindfulness practice, learning new skills, really allowed me to change my relationship with stress and had an incredibly profound impact on not only what was going on navigating fear and uncertainty at home, but had an enormous impact as well on my ability to lead through various disruptions and chaos and stress on the work front. And this was a huge sort of aha moment for me. I had always kept my mindfulness practice very, very separate from work and my career. I think I thought that was what one does, sort of compartmentalizes, if you will. And I learned that bringing some of these in-the-moment practices organically into my leadership style at work was enormously beneficial, not only for me as a leader, but really the teams that I was leading. I began to show up differently, and I began to also communicate with a lot more vulnerability and openness uh, about about all things. And um, 
I took the opportunity to uh, that time in my life. I, I took some time and went back to study quite a bit more. Went to University of California, San Diego. Their Center for Mindfulness is in the School of Medicine and engaged in an intensive teacher training there uh, that taught me um, mindfulness-based stress reduction and learned that curriculum, which is an incredibly powerful curriculum, um, and became qualified to teach. I also went back to get certified from a leadership institute out of San Francisco called the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute that trains teachers and certifies teachers in neuroscience, mindfulness, and emotional intelligence, and um, offers really powerful tools to support leaders who are interested in building resilience, building their empathic and compassionate leadership skills, and really increasing their awareness so that they can become much more effective and productive leaders. So uh, both of those trainings uh, and certifications um, became um, important to me. And that really began my journey towards identifying what my purpose really is in life. And I feel so passionately about the practice of mindfulness and ways that we as leaders can build resilience and become much more effective, productive versions of ourselves and bring this into our organizations and our cultures to make a tremendous impact on the organizations that we serve. So I did recently leave my senior leadership role at Fossil, and I launched INSEAS to, uh, to bring programs out to corporate America and others in the community that are looking for a way to transform their relationship with stress in order to be more resilient and um, be more effective in really all aspects of life. Stress can be a huge factor that we're dealing with as HR professionals um, in the industry. You know, mental health awareness is a, is a major concern for Gen Z. You'll see statistics coming in that they're they're more aware of their their self. They're more aware of the things they need. But um, HR professionals see an increase across generations on things like ADA accommodations related to anxiety and stress. So, what factors do you think have contributed to this rise in in mental health issues in the workplace? Well, first of all, we need to credit Gen Z for just the openness uh, to bringing this conversation more and more to the forefront, and and millennials. Um, I think I think just the openness and awareness uh, that younger generations um, are exhibiting helps all of us as we navigate this new landscape. I want to speak to maybe two things that are very closely connected um, on on the rise of mental health issues. And the first is a scientific finding called neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is the finding from the mid and actually late 1900s that, or second half of the 20th century, that um, scientists now know that our brains are malleable. Our brains, we have the lifelong capacity to change the structure, the neural connectivity, and the density of regions within our brain. And so what this means is we can think of our brains in much the same way as we can think about other muscles in our body. 
you can strengthen and change the shape of them by using them uh, or using certain regions of the brain. And I bring this up because technology has, as, as phenomenal and amazing as it is, um, technology has really disrupted the way we now use our brains and the way we turn our attention to things. The constant onslaught of information, digital information, the 24-7 access that we all have, and there is some level of expectation that we will respond within a certain amount of time because we're all so accessible and, and reachable, means that we are constantly distracted and means that our brains are not necessarily resting in the capacity that they were designed to. So there is just this constant um, inflow. And when we engage in this constant inflow of information, we are jumping from topic to topic to topic, which is really some form of distraction. Uh, and while we jump from topic to topic, we're using a region of our brain that scientists call the default mode network, and it's where we default to when we are not focused intently on one thing, but instead, every couple of minutes or every couple of seconds, we're jumping from, from, from thing to thing or from subject matter to subject matter. And the default mode network is the area of our brain that is connected to emotional reactivity, that is connected to conditional bias, autopilot behaviors, and self-referential thinking. It's also an area of our brain that is closely connected to, when, when activated, closely connected to our nervous system that's responsible for increased heart rate, increased cortisol levels, and some things that are deeply damaging physiologically. So this area of our brain is, is, is being used regularly with the digital onslaught and constant um, connectivity of our modern world. Not necessarily a problem if you are strengthening other regions of your brain at a similar rate or fashion that are strengthening the connectivity to regions responsible for awareness, deeper insights, long-range strategic thinking and planning, compassion, empathy, uh, and emotional regulation. This is where mindfulness really comes in because it strengthens these other regions of the brain. So from a neuroplasticity front, coming back to my original point, when you are focused on um, jumping from topic to topic, you're just strengthening that muscle that leads to more reactivity, more emotionalism, more increased cortisol levels, and activation of our nervous system that puts tremendous physiological pressure on our body. Wow. I um, it, When you bring in the science behind it, you know, and you think about uh, the, the change in digital and I mean, I, I can just, I can think about my own routines in my own life. And I'm like, wow, you know, when I'm on the treadmill, it, just last night, I had a video on, I had a podcast on, and I was obviously on the treadmill. And so like, I wasn't focused on any one of those things. When we all do it, yeah. right? We all do it. And there is this discussion about doing it. Oh, 
have you seen this? Have you read this? This 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 pressure almost to engage on so many different levels. While the access is amazing, we need to strengthen capacities that we aren't otherwise strengthening that can counterbalance that. And that is really the science and the secret behind mindfulness practice, mindfulness trainings, which really cultivate and strengthen these muscles in our brain that lead us to these different regions that build emotional intelligence and ultimately build resilience. Yeah, I recently read an article on Forbes, and it was um, the 12 most important skills you need to succeed at work, and resiliency was number two on that list. So can you share how you would define resiliency? And then secondly, why do you think it's so high up on the list? So resilience, I I would define it in a real simple manner um, that probably parallels what you'll find in, in, in the dictionary, which is resilience is the ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune uh, and change. And that ability to recover from misfortune or change is absolutely required in our modern world because we are moving with such speed and into new pathways, new ways of operating globally. And there is such disruption creating change on in all fronts of our life. Um, so why does it rank so high? Because without resilience, you really can't recover or navigate change and challenge and misfortune with new paradigms, new business models that are being launched with such speed, there will be constant failure, um, fast failing and um, opportunity that that comes from it, but only from those who are able to experience it, withstand it, get back up, see the learning and move forward in a way with deeper awareness and insight. And on that same Forbes um, article, the 12 most important skills you need to succeed at work, the number one was learnability. And resilience, from my perspective, is the support structure for learnability. Right. Because learnability, they're, they're not talking about learning new hard skills necessarily. So, and in some categories they may be, or some businesses they may be. But Forbes is talking about unlearning what you think you already know so that you can start with a blank slate and see all the possibilities, broad possibilities, and identify which ones to focus on to go deep. Yeah, And resilience supports that um, because the two are very closely connected. So I think that's... Um, you know, that's really why it's high up there. Yeah. So we already have kind of established that, you know, old, old dogs can learn new tricks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how does one go down the road of learning resiliency if it's not in their in their toolkit right now? Well, resilience is an outcome of mindfulness practice. And we know this. We we can see this through, through measurements um, and and um, assessments, we can train and cultivate resilience 
in three ways. I like to think about training for inner calm and composure because without inner calm and composure, you can't quickly recover from challenge, failure, disappointment. You can train resilience on the emotional level, emotional resilience, which is closely connected to managing your triggers and your reactivity so that you can see more clearly and continue to move forward. And we can train resilience cognitively, really intellectually understanding and reframing certain situations, understanding how cognitively we approach problems, failures, solutions. Do I approach things from a pessimistic viewpoint or mindset? Do I approach things from an optimistic viewpoint or mindset? Martin Seligman's done a lot of work um, around cultivating positivity and learned optimism. So we can learn optimism. Again, it all comes back to this concept of neuroplasticity, that what we practice grows stronger. So we can practice resilience through inner calm, emotional resilience, and cognitive resilience as well. And various mindfulness practices plug into each of those uh, some of them, them can be in-the-moment practices, and some of them can be more dedicated, uh, lengthy practices that we can work with these things. Yeah, that's a good segue to my next question is what are some practices that, you know, practically somebody who's listening can walk away and say, okay, I'm going to implement these couple practices to be more mindful every day? Sure. Well, one of the reasons that mindfulness teachers and practitioners talk so much about the breath is because, number one, it's always with us, and it's a tool that you can turn your attention to to unlock inner calm and more self-awareness. So one of the easiest things you can do is just literally practice turning your attention to the breath for the full cycle of an inhale, the full cycle of an exhale in any moment. And you can do this in the middle of a meeting. You can do this before you walk into a meeting. You can do it as you're walking down the hall, as you're sitting in traffic, whatever it is. Literally just turning your attention to the breath is a tool that practices and strengthens the muscles in our brain that bring us out of that default mode network and that center of reactivity into another area of the brain. So you'll strengthen that highway between the two. Another thing that you can do in the moment is plug into the body. Body awareness operates in the same way that breath does. Our bodies and our breath are always real time. They're always in this moment. They're not occupied with some past story or rumination we've got going on. They're not occupied or in the midst of some future story that you've gone on that you have going on. They're they're present time, they're real time. So plugging into the body, what do I mean by that? Feeling your feet on the floor, feeling the motion of your arms as you walk, feeling yourself sit in a certain chair. It sounds odd. However, it becomes a tool to just plug into the present moment and quiet this chatter and often rising stress and bodily functions associated with that to just just quiet it and calm it and it activates something and scientists actually know that when you turn your attention to the breath again you're triggering this this 
upper neural road to a different area of your brain. So those are those are two things you can do. Um, some more dedicated mindfulness practices revolve around meditations that might have you focus using the breath and using your body on things that have triggered you and just stopping, taking a breath, observing your reactivity and your emotions, observing your thoughts, where your thoughts are going, and observing another person who perhaps you're in reaction to or with, observing what might be going on with them, trying to step for a moment into another person's shoes. Again, all of these things are um, are are tripping our brain into certain neural pathways that unlock insight, wise, judicious response, and also compassion and empathy. Make sure you tune in for part two to hear the rest of the discussion.